Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day, and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, I'm, I'm glad that the method we record on uh, means that we can't actually see each other because I imagine you woke up with the same self-satisfied smug smile that you went to sleep with last night after that remarkable performance against Liverpool. Just call me the Cheshire Cat, Kevin. That's that's how I'm. That's how I'm looking today. I'm irritate. I'm, I'm irritatingly cheerful at the best of times. But uh, wow, yeah, fifty years of watching it. Best overall ninety minutes performance. I'm still pinching myself. Uh, and, and fair play to Jurgen Klopp and fair play to all the Liverpool fans I spoke to after the match. They were no excuses. Um, and uh, yeah, we'll we'll take it. Yeah, it, if you if you support a club. Like ours or, or yours, you do of these these moments, you do of these these periods of time, and make the most of everything. That's what I always say to fans because uh, ultimately you, you're trying to beat gravity in terms of you know, the money in the game, and we know it's that's why we have this show. But uh, we, we're doing okay at present. Well, talking of my club, Kieran, and the money in the game, uh, Palace are off to Stamford Bridge this afternoon for an inevitable bit of charitable work in an attempt to keep Graham Potter. In a, game, in, a, in a job by losing to Chelsea. Uh, but many people this week here, and I don't particularly know why it's been driven this week in, in, uh, in particular. I, I was trying not to use the word particular twice here, Kieran, but I, I failed spectacularly. I'm disappointed with myself. But a lot of people have been asking us, especially on social media, about the amount of money that Chelsea have spent on players and how they're still able to stay within FFP regulations while doing so. Yeah, I think it is an intriguing one because you know, we, we've seen that Manchester United um, are signing a player from effectively from Burnley on loan because of financial fair play considerations. Um, I think what, what you need to do is, is to look at all of the dynamics and the money both coming in and going out of the club uh, in terms of how it impacts upon FFP. And I think one of the uh, one of the downsides of FFP is that it is based on accounting figures, and yeah, you know, I'm, I'm the first to admit that they can be. I don't think manipulated is is the right appropriate word, but I don't think they necessarily show the the overall true picture. So if we take a look at Chelsea, what you find is over the course of the last decade, they have sold players at a profit of £658 million. Now, that compares to Manchester United, who during the same period have sold players at a profit of about £130 million. So they've got you know, over half a billion pounds of extra money coming in. And remember, FFP is effectively your money coming in compared to your money going out. And, and when we think of money, we think of cash. But for FFP purposes, it comes to the favourite word of the Price of Football podcast, amortisation. And Chelsea, um, I think this is it. Is it Mudrick, the, uh, the the Shakhtar Donetsk winger that they signed uh, underneath the noses of Arsenal uh, just before just before the show went out? In effect, I suspect um, they've signed him on an eighty million pound contract. They've made some other big signings of uh, you know tens and tens of millions. But if you take a look at the way that these deals have been organised, these players are on six and a half year or seven year contracts. Yeah. So. From an FFP basis, if I sign a player for £80 million on a seven-year contract, you spread that cost through amortisation and you end up with, with effectively an FFP cost of just over £11 million. Um, Chelsea last year, they sold Tamori, they sold Abrahams. Both of these, of course, were uh, academy players and they sold them probably for a profit in the region of uh, around about 70 million from those two players alone. So in, in when you sell a player, all of the profit goes into your calculations immediately. But when you buy a player, the cost of that player is spread over the life of the contract. And yeah, normally when you'd sign a player, you'd be looking perhaps at a three or a four-year deal, especially for an unproven player. What Chelsea have done, and this this is a gamble because if, if these players turn out to be you know the next Nikola Zigic or the next, say, you know, Winston Bogard, who who you know, have been signed on big contracts on big money, and they and they don't deliver. You've then left with a player on you know tens, if not a hundred thousand pounds a week or more, and, and you can't shift the player. 
because nobody else is willing to match those wages and, and nobody's willing to, to pay a decent transfer fee. So it, it is a gamble, but from a financial fair play point of view, they are okay. If they don't get into Europe, it's going to make things a lot more squeaky bum, though, when we reach this summer's window. I went to see my accountant, um, little Bobby Numbers, uh, on Wednesday about my uh, next tax return. And in response to a plaintive question from me, Bobby Numbers agreed that accounting figures can be manipulated, but he had no intention of doing so. <laughs> uh, he did suggest there are a couple of uh, tax experts on a market stall in Tooting that may help me, but in the meantime, <laughs> just going to have to suck it up. Our, our first question, Kieran, comes from Mike Lloyd. And I'm assuming that Mike Lloyd is a Wolves fan because he says that last year Wolves chairman Jeff Shee said that the club are now a corporate, Fosun Sports, having diversified into fashion, music and esports. Our 200,000 legacy fan base isn't big enough, apparently, so they plan to market the brand in Asia, selling clothing and advertising to our new fan base. Downside is we won't fix Molyneux, which is falling apart. We won't invest in improving the team. And we will have to buy Chinese and Korean footballers that appeal to our new fan base. I should point out there are many, many very good Chinese and Korean footballers that appeal to your new fan base. And you've been in quite a few Portuguese ones in as well. But Mike says, my question is this. Does any team other than us have this business model? And is this the future for football fans? I think this is... uh an intriguing one where a football club is acquired by a conglomerate and they are seen as just another arm of the overall multifaceted business. Um, and, and therefore, you are, a, you are a brand and you are expected to increase the, the overall income of, of the business as a whole. Um, I, I think Fosun are perhaps being... <coughs> A wee bit ambitious here, though, because you know, why do people buy products? They they buy them because they associate the brand with success. They associate the brand normally with a particular position or viewpoint or lifestyle. And consumers can be very fickle. So you know, we've said in the past that football, in many regards, is a very silly business because you've got 25 to 30 paydays a year if you know if, and if that's that's if you're lucky that's if you a lot of you know cup success and and the rest of the time your stadium's empty so so trying to uh make Wolverhampton Wanderers into a lifestyle brand you can see the logic behind it but converting that logic into success is is more of a challenge you, you don't see you know, Manchester United for example have got yeah, yeah let's be honest they've got a lot more than Wolves legacy fan base and yes they sell a lot of merchandise but the vast majority of that is football kit related yet they they do try to move into leisure wear and lots of clubs have tried this in the past with with limited success because uh, you know if, even if you're a die hard Manchester United fan or Wolves fan you know, do you actually want to buy a Steve Bull duvet cover or you know a, a Gary Neville toothbrush mug that there's there's a limited amount of people willing to pay for that. So sometimes you, you might be able to come up with a, a marketing strategy, and you won't necessarily be using the footballers. You might be using other influencers who 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 wear the branded goods, but that doesn't tend to have a long term impact on the overall success of of Wolverhampton Wanderers as a brand. Ultimately, that will come from success on the pitch. And and you could argue there's a bit of chicken and egg here. If they they invest a lot of money into the brand and that brings in more money, that's more money for the football club, which makes the football club more successful, which drives up the brand. And you can create a virtuous circle. But lots of people historically have tried this in the game. And I think it's fair to say that very few have succeeded. I don't think anyone's going to get a good night's sleep under a Steve Ball duvet cover, are they? That would be terrifying. And, <laughs> and good luck to the marketing man who tries to sell anything that's got Gary Neville next to the word mug. Uh, <laughs> uh, Wolves, of course, I mean, back in the 50s, Wolves were uh, pioneers in, in branding. I mean, they branded themselves, didn't they, as, as Europe's best team. They installed floodlights very early so they could get a series of lucrative friendlies against the best teams in Europe. They 
uh, juiced up their kit. I think they got shiny work. So there is um, there's nothing new under the sun really when it comes to football, is there, Kieran? It's just the scale and the 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 scope uh, of, across the the world that we're talking about, isn't it? You're absolutely right. Um, and you know, Wolves are up against Manchester United and Real Madrid and PSG. With, with the players that those clubs have who are brands in their own rights. Mm. And it, it, it's, it's tough. It, it's really tough. Um, you know, that some, some do manage it, but that tends to be quite often individuals in sport. If you think about Tiger Woods and Roger Federer and so on, um, it, it's actually uh, quite difficult for a team to do it, especially if you if you do have a, a very successful player or, or, or even a few players, because you know football being the pecking order that it is, is that those players, as soon as they get identified as being good, they become attractive to to other clubs with with bigger wallets. So uh, yeah, I, I wish Wolves all the best because it's one of my favourite away day trips. Mm. Um, but I, I think Foson are being a wee bit ambitious here. I appreciate they from their point of view. They know the Chinese market far better than you know pe- people sitting here on this podcast, and and uh, they they might feel that they'll be able to open that particular door. But I think the Chinese consumer as well is also you know quite discerning, and you know trying to get them to to buy those branded goods will be a huge challenge. Was that Finley barking in the distance, or a very small dog barking next to you? It- no, no, it, it is Finley who uh, uh, we're recording this at half past ten in the morning on Sunday, and that's when uh, that's when the Baroness has her 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 Nespresso coffee capsule thing, and every time that she does that, as soon as she puts on the machine, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm letting you letting into the secrets of of my my very dull life here. Um, he has a Pavlovian reaction because he knows he normally gets a wonky chomp. Uh, when she has her coffee, so he's. I think she's. She's normally does it at quarter past ten, and she's a bit late. And and he has got this internal clock, so he's making noises along the lines of, uh, you know, get, "Get your ass into gear, girl." Well, so, I mean, talking of branding, you two are a lifestyle brand in yourself. Why? You, why the front of Hello Magazine hasn't been graced <laughs> with a picture of you two fondly holding Finley is beyond me. Um, Scunthorpe United, Kieran, are a team. Unfortunately, we've mentioned far too much recently. Mm. Uh, and this question comes from Barry Nicol. It turns out to be very relevant this weekend, unfortunately. And Barry says, um, and I'm guessing he said this when they were relegated, Barry says, after 72 years, sadly my local team, Scunthorpe United, were relegated out of the Football League. And the National League appears to be even more competitive than ever before, which unfortunately turns out to be true because it's come for the bottom of it at the moment. Mm. Uh, Barry says, what are the financial comparison between the teams vying for promotion in 22-23 and could Scumfort face a long battle without new investment and he adds the words many thanks at the end which is a good way of getting the question answered but I mean this has been a bad few days for Scumfort here and they really are looking like they can't avoid relegation to National League North I presume they would be in they face a winding up order now uh, because of unpaid tax bills and certainly speculation um, on Sky Sports yesterday, is without new investors, they could be looking at a very bleak future. Yes, it, it, it is very sad. And uh, I, I believe there was a uh, sit-in protest on, on the centre circle. Certainly, Scunthorpe fans you know, were on the pitch for a period of time they, they were yesterday's in the match. They were in the Championship 11 years ago, Kieran. Yeah. And, yeah, and, I, and I, not, I yeah. remember seeing Bobby Bobby Zamora sent off at Scunthorpe. Yeah, um, yeah they. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I have huge sympathy for for the predicament that they're in. Um, you know, if if we start off looking at Barry's question, the National League is is really tough. Yeah, you've only got to look. You know, we've got Wrexham and. Uh, Notts County, both at the top there, quite often getting five-figure crowds. Um, the wage bill for some of the clubs is in the region of three to four million pounds. You've got players who are who are dropping out of leagues one and two to sign deals with clubs in the national league, and the average losses for clubs in the championship. And I'm going back here to to pre-COVID time. So yeah, taking out the pro COVID, the, the clubs were on average losing seven hundred thousand pounds a year, and that's across the whole division. Wow. So it's 
it's it's a really tough position that uh, the clubs find themselves in. Uh, and yeah, we saw Scunthorpe and Oldham both relegated last season. Both big clubs. You know, yeah, you, you and I remember the, the glory days of Oldham. Oh, God, uh, yeah. Yeah, when they were in the Premier League, and, yeah. and you know the likes of Frankie Bunn and Andy Ritchie were, were, were doing amazing things. Um, well, the, so, same, the yeah. same day we beat Liverpool four three, they were drawing I think three all with Man United in the FA Cup semi final. That's right. Yeah. So it's yeah, it, it is a it, it is such a sad fall. Um, yeah, it, it is the nature of football, and I think it it comes down to the the culture of the club coming from the very top. So, you know, you, you rightly said Scunthorpe have had a winding up order from HMRC. Um, I've I've seen the amount of money that's owed to HMRC. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say it on the show, but it's, right. it, it is substantial. They also owe the EFL uh, a large amount of money because um, when we did have COVID, the EFL arranged loans for clubs. I believe there is money outstanding to the the kit supplier, um, and you know we, we've spoken that the club owner has his own personal issues, and, and there's an ongoing court case there. Um, so I, I have a lot of sympathy, and and then yeah, and this this might sound that I'm trying to pick on people, and, and I'm trying to be bitchy, but I'm genuinely not. On on Friday, there was I saw that there was planning permission put in for to redevelop the ground and I'm going yeah I think you should be focusing on you know short term issues and also um there was a uh, there was a racehorse which appears to be owned by the something to do with the owners because it's owned by something called the Cool Silk Partnership which was which was running in Abu Dhabi mm. I'm going if 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 you're trying to get Scunthorpe United out of this mess and it has been said that the Begbies the insolvency firm are there at present but the club's not in administration because they're trying to do a workaround to avoid administration uh, or or a long administration so say um then you know why are you running racehorses in in Abu Dhabi uh yeah and yeah ironically it came 14th out of 14 horses as well which I think it just sort of shows uh, where the club is, at, or you know, where people connected the club are in, in terms of decision making. Um, so it, it's a very sad situation. It's a very expensive business to get out. But what I would say to Scunthorpe fans: um, winding up order is not the same as the end of the club. Um, even dropping into the National League North is not the end because we've seen. Um, uh, we've seen Stockport County drop yep. into National yep. League North, and then a new order, a new owner comes in. The fans rally round. Um, they they went back into the National League. They're now back into to League Two, um, and they've got people who are pointing in the same direction. And I think this is part of the problem: is that there has been a disconnect between the club owners and the the fan base and and that normally comes down to communication because you, you and I we, yeah we we both met Andy Holt uh, at Accrington and you know Andy's a man that is is not short of opinions but what he does do is that he engages with people mm. and yeah and if, and if you if you do talk to people and you don't patronize them and you're straight with them then i, I think you can uh, you can get them on board and and you know that relationship uh, you know, when you've got owners who are suing fans and suing other people who who do raise concerns about individual football clubs, that's that's not really the way to go through that to go through to, to build up that relationship. And there have been rumours, Kieran, of of new investors for Scunthorpe. Do we know anything uh, hard, concrete on, uh, about that? Yes, there, there, there have been offers. Um, I've, I've been contacted on social media by some of the people involved in making the offers and i think there is a sense of frustration um yeah it, I, I i don't want to put too many words into this but yeah sometimes you think you've reached an agreement and somebody moves the goalposts mm. and, and that really doesn't help when when you've got a, a business which is going through a crisis and in terms of getting out of that national league kieran it, it is there any particular reason why they can't have two automatic promotion places? Because that's what's making things very difficult. Is that is that a dispute with the EFL? Is it a, a hangover from the old 
applying for re-election days. What is the reason? It, it is sort of a, uh, a, a legacy issue. Um, we, we have seen um, over the course of the last week or two, I, I think this is part of the EFL's overall strategy in trying to uh, have a more equitable distribution of monies within the football pyramid overall, that they are willing to have two up, two down, and then a playoff. Remember the remember the very first time that playoffs used to exist in, in the top division? Yeah. It was the side which finished third bottom yeah. in the playoffs against three teams from the top of what we now call the championship. I think the EFL, they don't necessarily want to go up three down, three up, three down, but you could have three down by having the, fin- the side that finishes third bottom of uh, League Two in a playoff arrangement uh, with some of the top teams in the National League itself. And it creates excitement and it creates interest. And it's certainly, you know, the, the crowds for those matches and the... the it's it's not joy. Yeah, we we both had playoff matches ourselves, and we both seen that. Yeah, we both suffered success and failure. It's it's not joy. It is tension, but it's the most incredible tension you'll potentially get. Um, and that that in in some ways is is actually really good because that that drives interest and that drives attendance and that drives more money into the game. Our next question, Kieran, comes from Richard H. and. Rather like Richard's name, which starts strongly with a big, firm, full name, but then just has an H. I think this is a really, really good question until the second bit when it gets a bit accountancy-based. And Richard H's question is this. After last season's Champions League final, there were rumours flying around that Chelsea actually made more money than Liverpool from the game due to Aidan Hazard's sell-on clause. My question is, how would this be treated in the accounts would this be a contingent liability? And if so, at what point would it be recognised? Okay, right. Um, Liverpool earned 15.5 million euro from UEFA for getting to the final of the Champions League. Clearly, you know, we don't know how much was the, the agreement uh, in terms of sell-on fees between Chelsea and Real Madrid. It's, it's, a, it's a private uh, document, but I, I would imagine it, it could be potentially very beneficial to Chelsea. Um, and what we actually have here is, is something called a contingent asset. And a contingent asset is it, it's possible future money that could be received, which is dependent upon an uncertain future event. And, and because accountants are so cautious, they say, don't bank that just yet, as far as the accounts are concerned. You can only show it in the accounts when it's it's certain or virtually certain. Um, what you're allowed to do is that if you think it's probable, you, you can stick it in a note. And, and if you go through the the footnotes to the accounts of different clubs, you, you will see some figures quoted um, on occasion, um, but, but in others you don't. Um, when does it actually therefore appear in the accounts. Well, yeah, we were talking at the start of the show about um, Chelsea having this quite amazing uh, success in terms of selling players. Well, it it will crystallise in the year in which the condition is satisfied. So if if there was, say, a £15 million uh, bonus uh, if, uh, if Real Madrid won the Champions League, then that will occur in Chelsea's 21-22 accounts, and that will further alleviate any uh, uh, financial fair play worries that they have in the short term, though I I do think that they're building up a much longer-term problem. Mm. You you touched on the question there, Kieran. uh, I'm forever hinting to Bobby Numbers about, and I don't know if you can do this in football. Say a football club has uh, been paid a large amount of money is there flexibility for the accountant to say, well, let's we can put that in next year's accounts or the year after? Do you, is there a time limit by which you have to include something in the accounts or are you legally obliged to do so within the tax accounting period? Um, there are very specific rules with regards to um, invoicing and cash flow with regards to your VAT return, for example. Mm. And, and there's also what we refer to as revenue recognition rules, which are, again, they are pretty strict um, from an accounting point of view, because th- this, is, this is to stop companies 
from accelerating or decelerating revenues. And, and you, you can see the, the logic behind that because let, let's say that you're, you're a football club or, or any other business, you've got a 31st of March year end and, and the government says, um, you know, in, in 2022, the rate of tax is going to be 25%. And in 2023, it's going to be 19%. Uh, yeah. You go say, well, okay, well, yeah, let's, let's not take any profits in 2022. Now, there are some industries um, construction, for example, where it is, it's pretty easy to shift the numbers forwards and backwards because, you know, if, if, if I, if you and I look at a, at a skyscraper and you say, well, uh, you know, well, you've done some work in the year. So therefore you've got to, you've got to show some money coming in. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're clueless, aren't we? Yeah. We say, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's two hundred million pound business. It's two hundred million pound building. Have they done twenty million pounds worth of work? Have yeah, they done forty yeah. million pounds worth? Of, have they done eighty? We wouldn't have a clue. I'll be honest. The accountants wouldn't have a clue either because they're accountants. So therefore, you you get somebody from the company and they say, well, you know, based on yeah, we are the experts. Yeah, we're involved in construction. It's X, and they'll get somebody else at the company to sign it off, and and it just goes through on the nod. Um, so, but. So it's easy for some businesses. If you're Tesco's and you're selling bread and bananas, you're stuffed. You know, you've either sold them or you haven't. Mm. Uncle Terry would know how much uh, money had been made on a skyscraper at any one time. Uh, 200 quid a year is my guess. So but Terry, <laughs> Terry, they've built five floors in two months. Yeah, yeah 200 quid. Uh, it, oh, no, well, I'm, you wouldn't argue with him. No, you wouldn't. And, and also we know from experience that Uncle Terry wants skyscrapers built as quickly as possible in case anyone examines their foundations. <laughs> uh, our next question comes from Andrew Flood, and I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, Andrew. It's F-L-O-U-D. So if it's Flood or indeed Flood, I apologise, but let's stick with Andrew Flood. And Andrew says Milan were taken over last year for 1.2 billion euros. It's got me thinking about the Newcastle takeover and how that compares. So Newcastle were bought for around three hundred million pounds, which is around three hundred and fifty million euro. Milan turned over two hundred and sixteen million euros in twenty one twenty two, while Newcastle turned over one hundred and seventy million. Does this mean Newcastle was a very good deal for the new owners, or is it that the business world is forecasting more potential growth within other major European leagues to compete financially with the Premier League? Right, I think this is a this is a, quite a nerdy question. So mm-hmm. thank you, Andrew, because I'm I am a nerd. Um, when when you value any business, the best way to value it is is to look at your future expectations. You know, how much money am I going to make out of this particular venture? And you also look at the the degree of confidence and certainty that you have. So in the case of AC Milan. Um, I'll be honest, I don't personally see a huge amount of growth in the uh, in, in the Syria broadcast revenues. But um, yeah, if, if you speak to, you know, as a football fan, would I expect AC Milan to be in the Champions League on a regular basis? The answer is yes. And there's a, whilst there's not a huge amount of money compared to the Premier League, from uh, from the domestic broadcast arrangements, um, UEFA uh, and the Champions League, especially the expanded Champions League, is looking increasingly lucrative. So you might say, well, you know, we'd, we'd expect AC Milan to be in the Champions League, let's say at least eight years out of ten, and and you'd factor that into your future expectations of of future cash. Whereas I think in the case of Newcastle. Um, and yeah, let's face it, they're having a brilliant season. Uh, they, they've been really, really smart with with their recruitment and uh, and player player uh, development strategy. Um, I don't think many people thought that they would be in a Champions League place in the mm. middle of January mm. 2023. And um, therefore, when PIF did their valuation and when Mike Ashley worked out his expected sales price for Newcastle, it was on the basis of, okay, yeah, we might get into the Europa Conference on occasion, but you know, breaking into the big six is going to be very, very expensive. And therefore, you're not going to be making 
money. But I, I think the the people involved with Newcastle, and you've got to give a huge amount of credit to, to Dan Ashworth and Eddie Howe and, and you know, other people connected with the club. Um, I, I think they have surpassed uh, expectations. And, and Newcastle is now looking like a bargain. Mm. Um, if we take a look at other deals, um, Bournemouth have gone for 120 million. When West Brom were sold, you know, we, we, yeah, we've spoken to Alistair and other people connected to West Brom. West Brom was sold for around about 200 million as a as a Premier League club. Southampton 260. You know, I, I've I've heard stories relating to, to to Crystal Palace that you know the owners were looking for if there was complete takeover somewhere in the region of 240 250 so so Newcastle slightly more than that and I think that's probably right because they've got you know it's a it's a one city club it's got a 50,000 capacity stadium um you know it, it's got it's got some things which would increase the value over the likes of if you're benchmarking against what you'd say the peer groups yeah, and they're yeah, West Ham Southampton Palace that type of club I think you know Intuitively, we would say uh, Newcastle is worth a wee bit more than that, but but you you don't rank Newcastle at present alongside the likes of AC Milan, given that they have been sort of you know hardy perennials of the Champions League, and, and it's it was that which drove the the AC Milan price more than anything else. So you think then that Mike Ashley will be sitting in his office in Coventry thinking, "Rats, I I undersold Newcastle then." Um. <laughs> With an element of hindsight, yes, but I, I do think the culture of the club, and uh, this this is something which is hugely misinterpreted and misunderstood. I think the culture of the club has has changed significantly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the ability to sell Newcastle has changed significantly because Newcastle has a much higher profile in the in the MENA, the uh, area, the uh, Middle East and North Africa, um, in terms of its attractiveness to uh, sponsors, commercial partners and so on. And that that wasn't the case with Mike Ashley because he his, his business experience is, is, is looking at things as how can I run on a break even, keeping costs to a minimum? And I think the the owners, the new owners, have completely changed that that environment, and it's worked. You know, it, it it may it they they may have t- become the new Everton in you know by i spending quite a lot of money and and spending it on duds. But but Newcastle they they've just been smart. Those uh, those scenes at Everton yesterday were unsavoury, were they not? I just I know this is not the pod to talk about that but you can't have a situation where the owners of the club have been advised not to go there for their own safety Kieran Kennedy that's awful yeah yeah I'm I'm a great believer in non-violent direct action the 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 importance of protest because you know without the suffragettes without the co-op movement you know we would be living in a in a far worse society um and uh there's a difference between protest and threats um and yeah you know, I, I, I possibly this isn't the first thing the first time this is or something similar of this nature has happened for all we know mm. uh, yeah and we also we should point out the vast vast majority of Everton fans would agree with your approach Kieran it's never too late to say this but happy new year from our friends at Manscaped the ball has officially dropped but that doesn't mean you have to drop the ball on your balls in 2023. Instead, why not join the 7 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with an offer especially for Price of Football listeners. If you go to manscaped.com and use the code Price of Football in big letters, Price of Football, you'll get 20% off the price of your order and free shipping. Indeed, chaps. If if when you drop your trousers, you don't want it to resemble Davy Crockett's hat, then what you need is the Manscaped Performance Package 4.0. You'll find the signature Lawnmower 4.0. It's advanced skin-safe technology, which reduces cuts and nicks on your delicate parts. And it also comes equipped with a 4000K LED spotlight. A grooming routine isn't, however, complete without applying Crop Preserver and Crop Reviver before showing off your 2023 self. And to complete the set, Manscaped are throwing in their shed travel bag and anti-chafing boxer briefs as free gifts to keep all your goodies 
stored comfortably. I've just Googled Davy Crockett's hat, and no, I do not want to look like that down there. So get 20% off and free shipping with the code PRICEOFFOOTBALL at manscaped.com. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com and use that code PRICEOFFOOTBALL. Time to feel sexy and free this 2023 with Manscaped. I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight, Stuart Dredge, on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings-on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Speaking of mispronouncing names, I'm hoping that I've got this one correct. Uh, so our next question comes from Javad Garici. Uh, and I'm going to wade into this question, Kieran, and say it with some confidence to disguise the fact <laughs> that I have not got a clue what it means. Um, Javad's quest- question is, when it comes to club valuations, which is a better metric for investors to make investment decisions? Is it enterprise value? Or is it EBITDA and why? Now, you have told me about EBITDA before, but I still can't remember which of the robots from Star Wars he is. So- <laughs> um, yes, uh, again, this is, this, is, this is a nerd question. It's actually, it's actually quite closely linked to, to what we've just been talking about in, in terms of uh, Newcastle United. Um, enterprise value, um, for, for people not familiar with, with the term, is the value of the football club uh, as a business. And that ultimately is determined by by the club's ability to generate cash. Um, EBITDA is a cash variant of profit. Now, um, without, I'm sure people are switching off in their thousands as, as I start to go through this, but um, not, not you can... Oh, no, no, not our listeners. <laughs> BAFTA, maybe, but not our listeners. <laughs> um Enterprise value can actually be ter- be determined by EBITDA, so so they're a lot closer than people think. Uh, sometimes you will use something called uh, an EBITDA multiple, um, and then you compare the uh, enterprise value of one business to another, and you work out an overall value for the club. Um, quite often, enterprise value is calculated by something called discounted cash flows and and this is where we we do sort of enter the the smoke and mirrors part of corporate valuations um discounted cash flows is where you say how much cash is this business going to make over let's say the next five to eight years now you then think yeah you and i both think well we haven't got a clue because yeah, if, especially if you take a football club yeah if you take brighton or palace yeah we we could be in the premier league in five or eight years time both of us we could be in the championship. We may have played a year or two in Europe, or we may have been scrapping for relegation. It's it's based on future expectations, and for for other industries, you know, if if we were looking at a company which makes uh, it, it makes chips for computers, then the chances are, you know, you broadly know how many computers are going to be sold every year. For the last 10 years, the market's been expanding by 3% a year. You can project that forward, stick it into a spreadsheet, and you can get it, you can get a number out with which you will have a reasonable degree of confidence. With football, you can't do that. There is so much uncertainty in football. Yeah, we, yeah, we've just been talking about Scunthorpe United. They were in the championship, and, and they're now, they're now yeah, potentially are going to be in National League North. So uh, putting any uh, discounted cash flow valuation into uh, a, a model um, and using that to determine enterprise value is is high risk. So therefore, another way of doing that is, is to look at your historic profits. But, but again, if, if you take a look at any of the, the sort of some of the big clubs, you, they, they are, they are uh, oscillating wildly. Uh, between profit and loss. 
Very good. Excellent. I'm glad. I'm glad, I'm glad you picked up on that. Excellent Smith's reference. Um, is EBITDA an acronym? Yes, EBITDA stands for Earnings Before Interest, Tax, Depreciation and Amortization. It's a cash proxy for profit. Um, the reason why uh, people in, in the world of valuation like it is uh, depreciation and valuation are quite often very arbitrary figures. You know, if I was to say to you, um, there's, there's, there's a new factory um over how many years do you think we should depreciate it well you, you might say 20 years you might say 25 you might say 50 so there's the the numbers are easy to manipulate um and, and this is where the people in the world of finance and and the accountants sort of have a bit of a fallout because the people in finance want more precision and the accountants tend to be a bit more laissez-faire with regards to it hmm. uh, our next question kieran comes from jamie ballock and i i think this is a really interesting question. Mm. I say I think because, to be honest, my attention span slips about two-thirds of the way through, but it seems to me to be an interesting one. And Jamie says, I'd like to know what you think about the idea of an equal spending cap based on an average revenue as part of any FFP model. So rather than allowing clubs to spend based on their own income, what if the average incomes of the top six clubs were used to create a spending cap? That way clubs with less revenue but a rich owner could spend up while larger state-owned clubs who seem to find what seems like inflated local sponsorship revenue can't spend all that money, but actually help raise everyone else's spending cap through the average. I would still keep the fair market rules as well, so could it help level the playing field a little bit if it worked? Uh, Yes, this is... Uh, I think Jamie's idea here has some similarities with what we see in the likes of the NFL and the NBA, um, in which there is greater equalization of revenues. Um, And um, when I was asked by some people, I can't say who they are, to to come up with some distribution models, this this was one of the models that that we did indeed look at, and and we we, we crunched the numbers and I put them into the spreadsheet and so on. Um, the, The aim to do is is... Is, is to write is, is yeah, to, 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 to reduce the inequality between the richest and the poorest and if we take a look at the Premier League the the richest clubs are, are generating around about 600 I think it's around about 630 million for Manchester City I think Liverpool are going to potentially could overtake Manchester United in terms of revenue when Liverpool's accounts come out for 2022 but at the other end of the scale you've, you've got clubs who are generating perhaps 120 million so um by having a, a spending cap and perhaps a spending collar uh, as well, it, it reduces what the bigger clubs can have. If you have some sort of uh, change in the distribution models for uh, match day income, because you know, we, we're, we're both old enough to remember, we have fo- football and money, things started to slide when the, the clubs decided that they were going to keep all of their home receipts. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think you should go that far because that would discourage clubs from um, spending money on to improve their stadiums. But if you take a look at what, what they do in the NFL, 60% goes to the home club. So you know, it, it still gets the lion's share. 40% goes into an overall pool. So the more fans that turn up, the more money goes into that pool. And it helps to, it just helps to take off the edge between the, the, the uh, the the richer clubs and the less rich clubs. So yeah, I'm I, I'm in I'm in favour of it. Um, uh, I, I think it's it's a progressive idea. Um, it, it doesn't make me a communist or a socialist to uh, want a a more even distribution of money uh, between the clubs. I think it just makes it a more competitive Premier League. Um, and and you know, people will say, well, yeah, yeah. Uh, Chelsea are having a bad season. Liverpool are having a bad season. They're still in the top half of the table. Mm. You know, um, so you know, e- e- even the uh, e- even these clubs and you know, and you know, Fulham, Brentford, Brighton, we're, we're doing fantastically well, but it, it ain't going to last. Yeah, you know, how it or it ain't going to last forever. That's for sure. Yeah, I couldn't be more pleased for you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> for new listeners, Kieran, could you uh, and for me, let's be honest, uh, the spending collar? What's that? 
a, a spending column. This, this is what exists in the um, NFL. It's to say you've got to spend a minimum amount on wages as well. Because, ah, okay. uh, and, and I think it's probably more appropriate for um, something like the NBA or the NFL, which is a closed league with no relegation. Because if you think about it, if you are guaranteed you know, a broadly equal share, and, and again, I, I do think we need to incentivize results. So I, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think we should split, split things evenly. I think the Premier League got it broadly right at present. Um, but if, if you were think about it, if you were in a league in which you're, you're guaranteed 100 million a year, from TV, and you're guaranteed you know forty percent from the attendance pool plus sixty percent of your home games, um, and there's no relegation. There's nothing to stop you from sort of you know dropping down to the local Weatherspoons, getting eight, yeah, getting eleven blokes, and say, "Do you want to play for my football team? I'll pay you seventy quid a week, um, and and watch your team stink out the division, and you've got guaranteed money coming in. So you've got to spend. I, I think the the collar is around about 80% of the cap. So so the, the players overall in, in a relatively small range of prices in terms of their remuneration. There are several subjects, Kieran, that crop up with an alarming basis uh, on this pod, and they are the subject of many, many of our questions. So the FFP, amortisation, the price of quinoa at the Amex. Um, <laughs> but certainly... <laughs> The West Ham stadium deal is something that exercises the imagination of a lot of our listeners. And this is an, an interesting take on it from Paul Wright. Um, Paul Wright says most people agree that West Ham got a great deal on their use of the London stadium. But what happens as time wears on? And what is the true cost of this deal to their development? Over the 99 years of the lease, the shape of what fans need will change and the stadium might need to be rebuilt and or redeveloped. A stadium like Old Trafford shows us that what was built 20, 30 years ago is now in poor condition and needs upgrading to be competitive and to meet fan expectations. What control or say do West Ham have in terms of when or if this happens? Well, I I agree with Paul and and I suspect the reason why so many listeners are interested in West Ham's position because the vast majority of listeners are taxpayers yeah. and therefore they they say yeah, well we, we don't think we're getting the greatest deal here and, and just to put it into context um last year um west ham paid rent of 3.6 million pounds for the london stadium and, and that was that was up by uh, 800,000 pounds compared to the previous season because my understanding from uh looking at various bits and pieces and, and, and listening to people I know connected sort of indirectly to West Ham is that if West Ham have more than 25 home matches a season, then they have to pay extra. And remember, of course, West Ham had a fantastic season last year in the in the Europa League and they reached the semi-final. So I think they ended up paying 28 matches, so they had to pay it more in rent. Um, but the, the operating costs of the London Stadium were somewhere in the region of 17 to 18 million pounds. And those operating costs were borne by LLDC. They were borne by the taxpayer. Um, so you know, West Ham got 18 million pounds worth of benefit for the 3.6 million pounds worth of cost. So that's, that's, the, that's the positives from their perspective. The downside, it's exactly the same as any person who is a tenant. You, you have little or no control over the repairs, maintenance, development of that property itself. So that's the downside from um, West Ham's point of view. But um, that's, that's Finley leaving the room. Um, so... You, I understand where Paul's coming from. You know what happens if LLDC spend no money in the tenancy agreement. I think there will be a minimum level of service that the landlord has to agree to, and, and if they fail to do that, then they could potentially uh, be be uh, on the receipt of litigation. And I think there there has been some threats of litigation historically between the the the, the owner and the tenant here, but. If it's only costing me three and a half million pounds of rent, and I'm and I'm saving myself seventeen million pounds in costs, that uh, that gap can be put into the playing budget. So I I don't see this as being a negative. Um, in twenty or thirty years' time, I think could things change? Yes, but 
you know, the political landscape could have changed. Um, and also, would the authorities who own the stadium want to have people pointing the finger to say, well, yeah, that, that was our Olympic stadium and you've let it you've let it run to ruin. So I think they would be under political pressure as much as anything else to have it to, uh, to a reasonable level of standard. And it is also used for other items. Yeah, it, it is used for athletics. It is used for concerts in, in the summer. And, and, you, and you won't be able to get Rod Stewart or Rick Astley selling it out in the summer um, if, if it's if it's in shabby condition, because they'll say, you know, we'd rather go to the Emirates or to, to Spurs Stadium or to Hyde Park and, and uh, strut our funky stuff there. Mm. Rick Astley is one of the nicest people I've ever met. I've, Excellent. Yeah, I've never met Rod Stewart, so I can't comment, but I, he'd have to go a long way to be as nice as Rick Astley. Uh, our penultimate question, Kieran, comes from Brian Snowden. And Brian says, in 2021, Watford went into a shirt sponsorship deal with Stake a crypto casino and sports betting platform, uh, brackets what could possibly go wrong, which I think is Brian's aside rather than Stake's business plan. Um, <laughs> uh, and Stake paid for the multi-million pound deal with crypto reflecting in the words of CEO Scott Duxbury, the ambitious outlook and commitment to innovation of both parties. Again, in brackets, what could possibly go wrong? Is there any indication in Watford's accounts as to how this played out and if the club did the sensible thing of immediately converting the crypto into a range of assets? Um, my understanding is Watford did the sensible thing right. and it left the it left the crypto bank account in the form of crypto and it arrived uh, at West Ham, sorry, West Watford's bank account in the form of physical sterling cash right. um, and, and, you know, and like any other asset you you, you, you can sell it. And, and converted into cash. So, so Watford decided to de-risk this. Um, we have seen an awful lot of volatility in in the market, uh, and uh, you know, I am uh, I am quite conservative with when it comes to, to my money and how I choose to spend it. And I I think it would be a, I, it, it's far too risky for me uh, to put a lot of money into something like crypto. But if you go back to twenty nineteen. Um, Watford at that stage, they had a, uh, I think they had a front of shirt sponsorship deal with an organisation called Sportbet.io, mm. um, and I think that deal, you know, you you'd normally get somewhere in the region of six to seven million for a, for a mid, you know, for a, a, a mid tier Premier League club like Watford. Yeah, that was very much the going rate, um, and I understand that was paid in Bitcoin. Um, and at, at the time that Watford uh, went through that deal, Bitcoin was worth uh, one Bitcoin was valued at nine thousand five hundred pounds. Um, within a few months, uh, Bitcoin went up to forty five thousand pounds. So, if if Watford had had a crystal ball, yeah, and let's face it, we've all said said this at Haydock and Nottingham and Aintree as well. Uh, if Watford had had a crystal ball. Um, but instead of the seven, six to seven million pounds they they made from the deal, they could have actually made thirty three million pounds for a single year um, from Sportbet.io. But you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing, and uh, the price of Bitcoin has has fallen by uh, around about seventy percent since then. So it's it's a highly volatile, unregulated, potentially manipulated asset. So it, it comes it comes with a lot of risk and. Uh, you know, Watford decided to de-risk by not uh, going down the let's let's hold on to uh, uh, Bitcoin and keep our fingers crossed. And of course, the other issue is that if you hold it on to if you hold on to Bitcoin, persuading your suppliers and persuading your staff to take payment for the, for, for wages and for the money and for, for goods and services supplied to them in the form of Bitcoin that might be challenging too. Because you know if 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 I do some work for somebody, or uh, if if I if I, if I I'm, I'm having the house decorated at present, if if I said to the decorator uh, Phil, who's who's a very good guy and a big West Ham fan, said to Phil, do, do, do you fancy being paid in in Bitcoin? He'd, he'd give me one of those looks that only decorators can give you. Yeah, to, to be honest, Kieran, if you said anything to Phil the decorator, he'd say, "Sorry, mate, uh, the Baroness is the one who." tells me what to do in this situation. <laughs> yes. uh, our final question comes from Johnny Foster, and I like the sound of Johnny Foster. I, I'm sure Johnny Foster 
is a really, really nice bloke. But when it comes to his football team, he's obviously defensive and a bit chippy. Uh, <laughs> which, I, which I like. Because Johnny Foster says, I'm a Huddersfield fan who has recently party to a bit of quibbling about being a small team. Now, in my mind, somebody called Huddersfield a small team just before the tables went over in the bar. But Johnny wants to know <laughs> who would be in the top five teams in the 92 when it comes to fans per capita. I'm thinking average attendance versus population or something like that. It's a good question. I think a lot of us who don't support massive clubs like to think that we are still big clubs, you know, in a, a ratio of these are, you know, terms of our size of population, etc. So where would Huddersfield be is what Johnny's trying to ask rather than about the other top five teams. Well, Huddersfield, in my view, would be towards the top of the list because if, if we take a look at the the population of Huddersfield, uh, it's it's one hundred and sixty two thousand, and they're getting crowds in, you know, they're getting, getting decent crowds. Um, but having done a bit of work of this, um, I, I can't give you a top five, but I can probably give you who I think would possibly be number one, and that would be Burnley. Oh, yeah, but Burnley. Average an attendance of around about 19,000 this season, and in the Premier League it was more than 20,000. Burnley, uh, if, if you go to the official census, has got a population of 88,000. So around about 20% of Burnley's population is going. Now, if we were to put that into context, um, I, I tried to find a few other um, one city clubs and Newcastle and Leeds are sort of you know two which come to mind and, you know, and, and they do have fantastic fan bases but to to if, if they were getting the same proportion of fans as Burnley do they would be both playing in front of home attendances of 175,000 wow so so yeah that's that's indicative of uh yeah but but I think you have to be a little bit cautious about this because you know, how do you define where a town or city ends? You know, I know it's defined from a census point of view, but you know, do, do, in Burnley, do you do you include some of the other areas close to the the town itself in in, in respect of uh, you know, places that don't necessarily have a football team? Um, you know, when I when I plugged in the figures for Brighton, it worked out. Yeah, you know, Brighton, if if we we would be getting crowds of fifty nine thousand. Mm. Thought, well, yeah, that. that yeah, again, that that's that's indicative, I think, of of just how close knit uh, Burnley is. Um, but yeah, I, I, if if I if I'd had enough time, um, I would have done it for all ninety two, but I didn't. But uh, I did it for a few, and, and certainly, in my opinion, Burnley uh, are top or pretty close to the top. Yeah, Johnny, you've got nothing to worry about. I mean, Huddersfield, what, what a rich history and tradition that club had. They dominated English football in the 30s. So I imagine Kieran Plymouth would be fairly high on that list, which is a good way of telling you that our next live show will, of course, be taking place on March 21st at Plymouth Argyle's home park. We'd love to see you there. Um, because we had to change the date, there are some tickets now available, and you can head to Plymouth Argyle's website to get them. Thanks to everyone who's donated to the pod via our Patreon page. If you'd like to make a small monthly contribution as well to the pod, then you can go to patreon.com slash priceoffootball. And if you have a question you'd like answered on the show, email us at questions at priceoffootball.com. And in the meantime, I shall hand you over to Mr. Kieran Maguire for his customary farewell. Well, thank you everybody for the support for the show and for contacting us and asking us questions and so on. And, and that's that's why we decided to uh, add that that little Chelsea chat at the start because uh, there has been a lot of interest, um, a lot of Newcastle fans, a lot of Manchester United fans saying, "How well, come how come Chelsea is spending it as if it's going out of fashion?" And uh, our owners are saying, "Well, we need to be a little bit more cautious." Um, so. Uh, Patreon, one way of supporting the show, yeah, just, just having a chat with us. Yeah, we're, we're, we're pretty affable, guys, uh, is another. Uh, but a third way, a third way is to go onto your podcast app and, and give us a review. It helps us in the charts. It helps us to have a bit of credibility when we're uh, when we're trying to get guests for the show. Um, and uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter what you put uh, in terms of the narrative. If you want to give a narrative description uh, of the review, you could even say, you would rather have it. Uh, you could rather have it presented by Jeffrey Archer and 
Leandro Trossard's agent, <laughs> both of whom are are known for great works of fiction. <laughs> and it wouldn't bother us. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. The I'm for the